you turn with me in your copies of the Scriptures to 2 Samuel chapter 5, we'll finish up that chapter today. I'll be reading from verse 6 through the end of the chapter, but our text will be verses 11 through 25. Hear once again the very Word of God from 2 Samuel chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now David said on that day, Whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore they say, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built, an, built all around from the Milo and inward. So David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also more sons and daughters were born to David. Now these were the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphelet. Now the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel. All the Philistines went up to search for David, and David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Raphium. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore he called the name of that place Baal-perazim. And they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Raphium. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, and he said, You shall not go up, circle around behind them, and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so, as the Lord commanded him. And he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, as we look at these accounts of Hiram the king of Tyre building a palace for David, and we hear of David's uh, taking more wives and concubines and the listing of his children, as well as the defeat of the Philistines on, in two different battles. Father, we pray that we would look upon these accounts with uh, eagerness, trying
trying to understand why you give such accounts of history past, the history of our forebears in the faith, even David, the King of Israel. Father, these examples are for us and for our teaching, and so help us to understand these in that regard. Bless your people now as we study this passage. May it be to them uh, meat and, and strength as they feed upon the Word of God. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, brethren, I'm going to finish up this chapter today, these last three subjects that we have uh, at the end of the chapter. Again, Hiram, the king of Tyre, makes an alliance with David that will last even into the reign of Solomon. And we see that in 1 Chronicles 14 as well as 1 Kings 5. A bit of history is given of the lineage of David as uh, he takes uh, to himself more wives and concubines in Jerusalem and bears children. That, That list of sons and daughters is given to us. And then lastly, the Philistines are soundly defeated at Baal Perazim. Uh, which means master of the breakthrough. In the land of the giants, the valley of Raphium. Raphium was a land of giants at one time. And so David, once again, as a king in Israel, takes on giants and defeats them again, the Philistines. This time the whole army and not just a single man. Well, let's begin by looking at this uh, alliance between David and Hiram, the king of Tyre and what importance that it might have. Beginning in verse 11 and verse 12, those two verses we read, Then Hiram king of Tyre sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, and carpenters, and masons, and they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Here we read of a profound gift by given to David by Hiram, the king of a coastal city, Tyre, who has just been anointed, David being just anointed as king over all Israel. And we might wonder why this gift and why this account is contained in the scriptures here. I believe there are at least three possible reasons we learn of this account at this time in the scriptures. First, and probably the most likely, is the fact that Hiram is attempting to curry favor with the newest king in the region. Remember that David was king over Judah in the southern part of what we call modern-day Palestine. The city of Tyre was in the portion of the land allotted to the tribe of Asher in the north, according to Joshua 19.29. While David was king in Judah in the south, he would have had few dealings, if any, with Hiram in the north, more than a hundred miles away. And now that David is king over all Israel, including Asher and Naphtali, the two most northern Israeli tribes, both of which extend past Tyre to the north, it is sensible that Hiram would want to make an alliance with his closest neighboring king. So he reaches out to David. Now there may be a second reason for this. It is likely that Hiram wants to establish safe overland trade routes through Israel to Egypt, Egypt being the most populated nation of that region. Lavishing gifts upon David and making an alliance is the least costly means of gaining those trade routes, warfare the most costly. So so Hiram is likely seeking to, to establish this alliance 
partly for economic reasons. A third reason could have been that Hiram feared David's might. Tyre at the time was a fortified port city on the Mediterranean Sea. By the way, it still exists, the city of Tyre on the Mediterranean. Again, we find that it was a fortified city in Joshua 19.29. Few kings would have even considered trying to capture it because of its fortifications. Yet, it was part of the inheritance for the tribe of Asher. And David might consider taking it for God's people as part of the command to take all the land. After all, David had just overthrown the fortified city of Jerusalem which many thought was impregnable. What might stop him from taking Tyre from King Hiram? And no doubt, Hiram may have thought that. Well, regardless of Hiram's motivation, the alliance that he strikes with David will last past David's reign and into Solomon's reign. As we see here, Hiram sends uh, men and material to build David's palace in Jerusalem. He would later supply material to Solomon for the building of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 9. It, it's interesting when, when he does that with Solomon, Solomon gives him, I think it's 20 cities in the north and, uh, uh, as, a, as a gift for having received all of these materials to build the temple. Hiram goes out to, to, to look at the cities and see these gifts that he had gotten and he declares that they're worthless, these 20 cities. Now, why Solomon gave him 20 worthless cities, we're not sure. But uh, Hiram makes a proclamation that these cities are absolutely worthless. The, that's the Hebrew word uh, that he declares over these cities. Nevertheless, the alliance remains for a while. Later in the scriptures, in, the book, in all three of the major prophets of the Old Testament, Tyre is is uh, uh, prophesied to fall and be judged by God. In Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel, all three of the major prophets uh, later in the, in the Old Testament. But for now, the historical accounts there, that there is this alliance between Hiram and Israel, first with David and then later Solomon. One last observation must be made about these two verses. Notice in verse 12, David acknowledges that God had exalted his kingship following the actions of Hiram for the sake of God's people. This is in stark contrast to what Saul might have done. Had, had Saul been the king still, and had Hiram sought to, to have an alliance with Saul, Saul would have probably thought that, that he was the important thing about this. And yet David says that his kingship is being exalted for the benefit of the people of Israel. So it's, a, it's a, a selflessness that he is showing here that's in contrast to his predecessor Saul. All right, let's turn our attention then to verses 13 through 15. This seems to be a parenthetical series of verses that have little or no relationship to the geopolitical things that are going on at the time. Remember, uh, David has just conquered Jerusalem and the Jebusites. He's about to go to battle with the, with the, uh, the, the Philistines who come from what modern day we would say in Palestine is the Gaza Strip, the southern part 
of Israel that is right up against the Mediterranean Sea. He's made an alliance with Hiram the king in the north and Tyre. These are all geopolitical things. But right in the middle of that, we have these three verses that talk about David's wives, concubines, and children. Here once again the verses 13 through 15. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. And after he had come from Hebron, also more sons and daughters were born to David. Now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphelet. Well, what is so important about these verses? And why do they appear here? I think there are two things that we need to emphasize here. First, David takes more wives and concubines. And second, the listing of David's offspring to those wives and concubines that he took in Jerusalem. David does himself a great disservice here. And I believe God records this to emphasize the sin that is at hand in David's life. David takes multiple wives beyond the two or three that he already has. Furthermore, he adds to that number concubines. Well, what are concubines? The dictionary definition is a woman with whom a man cohabits without being married, one having a recognized social status in a household below that of a wife, a mistress. So not only has he taken to himself wives, more wives, he's taken to himself mistresses. Brethren, David is living in sin with multiple women. Here, long before he sins with Bathsheba, two of those listed in this group are from Bathsheba, children that were born to Bathsheba, but he's already beginning his sin, sexual sin, in his life at this point in time. Just think about this. Having all these women in the same palace and living together, that, that can't be good even on a human level, and it certainly is a violation of the seventh commandment. In this regard, David is a king like the kings of other nations of whom Saul war- Samuel warned against. Remember when Israel wanted a king? We want a king like the other nations. Well, they got Saul first, and now they have David, and even some of his attributes mimic those of other kings in other nations. Because of David's presumptuous promiscuity, These children who are listed, as well as other born in the house of David, will war against one another. And Solomon, David's son, will follow in his father's footsteps, taking over 300 concubines into his palace. We see this in 1 Kings 11.3, where these words are recorded. This is a description of Solomon. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Now in 1 Kings, it describes that the turning of the way of the heart is that Solomon had intermarried with the people of the land there who, who were supposed to have been dispelled by the Israelites for the very reason that they not intermarry and lose faithfulness 
to Jehovah. And Solomon intermarries with women of all these other nations. And his heart is turned away. And in that chapter in 1 Kings 11, there's a description of all of the the worship that Solomon does outside of the worship of God himself to all the Ashtaroths and the the different Baals and things. And it's really uh, a a heart-wrenching circumstance. Here, the man who was considered and is still and probably is still considered uh, the most wise man to ever live was so unwise when it came to marriage. Well, this brings us to the last portion of the text, which is a great encouragement and beautiful foretaste of God's provisions for His people. But before I go there, I want to give the men of the church an admonition here. Gentlemen, lest you think you and I are far from this kind of sin that Solomon and David committed, I want to warn you. In the age of digital images, I want to ask you men, how many of you keep concubines in your own homes tucked away from your wives on your computers? Do you suffer from the same sins as David violating the seventh commandment in private? Do you think you're not hurting anyone by doing that? Gentlemen, our sins will devour us when we don't meet them head on in humility and humble repentance. If you need help in dealing with this kind of sin, I ask you to come to me and we'll work on it together. This is a grave, grave temptation in our day. And I know it is to you men. Men, we have to fight this temptation. We have to be better men than David and Solomon. And we have to do it with deliberate, deliberate action. So if you need help, come to me so that we can deal with it. All right, I want us to then turn to verses 17 through 25. Something's going to happen here that's not evident right at first when we look at these passages but I think it will be an encouragement to you all. Let's read the passage again. Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Raphium. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me, like a breakthrough of water. Therefore he called the name of that place Baal-perazim. And they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Raphium. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, and he said, You shall not go up, circle around behind them, and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be, when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For when the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines... And David did so as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. 
Brethren, this account of David defeating the Philistines is filled with meaning and poetic irony. Quickly, I think it would be helpful to consider the context that the Philistines are marching on Israel, why they're doing that. Remember the last time the nations fought one another was nearly eight years before. Saul was king over Israel, and both he and his people were soundly defeated. Saul was killed along with Jonathan, his other sons, and the people of Israel fled. This happened while David was in Ziklag dealing with the Amalekites, you might recall. So David's not with the armies of Saul when they are defeated by the Philistines. David is fighting the Amalekites. Well, after Saul's death, David reigns over Judah while Ishbosheth reigns over Israel on the east side of the Jordan. So there's a, a natural barrier between Ishbosheth, his palace and his his reign between himself and the Philistines who are on the, the west side of the Jordan and the west side of the Dead Sea, much further over to the coast. And David's in between them. David's in Judah between the two. Ishbosheth's on the east side of the Jordan, David's on the west side of the Jordan, and the Philistines are on the coastal part of, of what we call Palestine today. Those days have ended. Those days have ended. David now reigns over all Israel. Those on the east side of the Jordan as well as those on the west side of the Jordan. From as far north above Tyre to below the Philistine camps in the south. David now reigns over all Israel and his palace and throne are in Jerusalem less than 50 miles due east from the Philistine cities of Gath and Akron. There are four major Philistine cities, and the two nearest ones to Jerusalem are less than 50 miles away, Gath and Akron. What was a divided enemy is now a united threat, and the Philistines believe, likely, that it's time to put this threat down. What was a divided kingdom an impotent in large measure, is now a solidified kingdom in Israel and a very real threat to the Philistines. So the Philistines assemble in the Raphium Valley, the Valley of the Giants. That's what the word Raphium means. And they are awaiting David's army. It's interesting how they used to fight wars back then. Uh, Usually it started in the spring, ended in the late fall. They took the winters off don't understand that <laughs> but and then then when they would they would line up you know and uh, they would wait for their enemy to show up you know they would try to get a high ground position and wait till the enemy got the high ground on the opposite side of the valley and then they'd flow into the valley and and make war with one another well the Philistines are waiting at the Raphium Valley no doubt on the high ground on one side awaiting the people of Israel the armies of Israel to come and fight David pauses at this point. He hasn't assembled assembled his army. Well, we don't know. It's likely that they are assembling, but he pauses and does what every military commander should do before committing his troops to war. He should solicit God's direction, which David does. Every military commander should do that. God, what do I do here? 
Brethren, we live in a day when I believe God does not verbally speak to His people except in His Word, the Bible. I believe that's how God communicates to us today. And I believe the Bible gives us the necessary guidance to make even these kinds of military decisions that David was faced with. Yet, that's a sermon for another day, why that's so important. Suffice it to say, God speaks to every circumstance of life in His Word, and when confronted with difficult decisions, it's incumbent for us to seek God's guidance in His Word and to do it with diligence. Now, David does just that. He, he has the benefit of direct communication from the Lord. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. Now remember, they're in the Valley of the Giants. He's already fought one giant from Philistia, Goliath. He defeated him. But these are not... These are not uh, novice soldiers. These are well-trained uh, armies. And they are a formidable foe. And David seeks God's direction. Do I go up against them? Not only will you go up against them, I will surely deliver them into your hands. So David has a promise from God. So David acts in obedience and attacks the Philistines and overwhelms them at a place that he would then name Baal-perazim. Brethren, this is one of two places in the Scripture that I am aware of where the Hebrew word Baal is attributed to our Lord. I'm going to explain that here in a minute. The other place is in Hosea chapter 2 and verse 16 where the Hebrew word is rendered master in that verse. Brethren, the Hebrew word Baal means master. That's what Baal means. Or, or as we English say, Baal. That's what we call Baal. Okay? Uh, the Hebrew pronunciation is Baal. It means master. Most often in Scripture, it refers to a variety of false pagan gods who are masters over those who worship them. These pagan gods. In our text, the word Baal is tied to the word parazim, which means to break forth like a dam that is breached or a wave from a tsunami. Thus, a literal rendering would be the master of breaking forth. That's what this description, this name is of this place. God overthrew the Philistines like a tidal wave hitting them. Notice, too, that the Philistines left their idols behind, which David and his army carried away. And this is poetic irony. They left their Baals on the field. Their masters were left on the field. And the master that breaks floor swept over that field and swept them away. You see the, the beauty, the poetic beauty of this. And David recognizes that by giving it this title, Baal. Perazim. Baal Perazim overthrows the bales of the Philistines like a tidal wave. And how very appropriate that is in this description of the battle. The Philistines complete... The Philistines... 
are completely devastated, but they reconstitute themselves and return to fight another day. Again, David solicits God's direction, and though God sends them to battle again, it is now an end run situation for him. David, prompted by the wind in the treetops that mimics the marching of an army, but the result is the same. So why the difference in these two kinds of battles? What's happening here that's instructive for us? I believe these events foretell how God will deal with Satan and his minions following the resurrection of our Lord and Pentecost some many days later, 50 days later. Our Lord bursts forth in his crucifixion and resurrection by redefining all of history. When Christ dies on the cross and rises from the dead, he is changing all of history. He is bursting forth like a tidal wave. Sin has been overthrown. Death no longer has its sting. All of history has now changed. Jesus Christ has burst forth. We even sing that, don't we? When, when, uh, when Easter comes, we sing about the bursting of the grave. Uh, well, I think it, it's, it's pictured here as well. Sin and death are conquered, and the way of the new covenant in Christ's blood is a tidal wave of redemption. That wave continues to overtake everyone in its path and will do so by and through the work of the Holy Spirit until the glory of the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the seas. Well, what about the second battle? The overtaking of the Philistines in our passage is led by a wind in the treetops that sounds like a marching army. This is indicative of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church of Jesus Christ. Just as at Pentecost, 3,000 were added to the church, and a month later, another 5,000 were added, the Spirit moves where He wills and draws sinful men and women under the torrent of cleansing blood from Jesus, from the one who burst forth from the grave to justify men. Brethren, we serve a God who burst forth in might, power and glory to overtake a seemingly gigantic enemy, Satan and his minions. He is a torrent of grace and mercy. His spirit is a marching wind and God's enemies shall be swept from the field either by a bended knee in surrender or the just and mighty right hand of God in judgment. That's who we serve. And he's pictured right here on the battlefield with the Philistines. Surrender to Jesus is the message of the Scripture. Let His blood wash over you. Let that tidal wave cleanse you and make you a fit servant for the King. Otherwise, judgment will be at hand for you. Turn from your sin, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and Jesus will give you that rest. For He is the only one who can give you such rest. Let us pray.